Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. New York City Council recently approved a plan to build four new borough-based jails to replace the massive detention complex on Rikers Island. Under this plan, city jails will be able to house just over 3,000 people, but that's less than half the city's average daily jail population today. Coming up on the show, Associate Editor Seth Barron and Contributing Editor Ralph Manguel will discuss the plan to shut down Rikers and what it could mean for New Yorkers. The conversation between Seth Barron and Ralph Manguel begins after this. Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, City Journal's associate editor. I'm joined today by Rafael Mangual, fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor at City Journal. We're talking today about New York City's plan to close Rikers Island and build four smaller jails to replace what some have called a brutal penal colony in the East River. The city council voted last week to move ahead with the plan. So we're just going to talk about what the implications of this new move are. Uh, Rafael, thanks for joining us on 10 Blocks. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't you tell us, what was the problem with Rikers Island? What, why does it have to be closed? Well, I'm not really sure I'm the one that can answer that question. It doesn't seem to me like closing Rikers Island is is an imperative based on some of the problems that have been pointed out, right? I mean... Um, from what I understand, the experience for inmates is not particularly good. Um, but what that has to do with the actual set of buildings that they're housed in um, is really unclear to me. So, you know, I, I, it seems to me that there was kind of a predetermined uh, sort of politically motivated decision that this, that this island needed to be shut down and that uh, the system needed to be borough-based and... Um, yeah, I just I, I personally don't see why we have to go down that route. Well, I mean, from what I understand, uh, the current facilities on Rikers Island are are not in good repair, and they're also they also were not built um, in accord with today's best practices for jail design. Sure, where people live in kind of a pod, and the the guards can see what's going on. The jails at Rikers Island are built with like distorted lines of sight. Sure. And corners where people are, are, you know, can't be seen by the guards. Yeah. Plus, the whole place is kind of falling apart. Sure. Look, I mean, um, you know, as for the repairs that are needed at the facilities on Rikers Island, I mean, certainly there must be ways that you could do that without shutting the entire the entire island down and and building a borough-based system. But you know. I think it's important that while, yes, it's true, um, the sort of setup of Rikers Island is not, um, does not reflect sort of modern uh, penological science in so far as sight lines are concerned and that sort of thing. Um, but one of the things I think we would need to really think carefully about is, is ask the question, about, uh, which is how much of the today's problems are actually attributable to those design defects, right? I mean, the the, for example, look at the jail violence issue in, within Rikers Island. Um, violence has been going through the roof, both inmate-on-inmate violence as well as inmate attacks on guards. Um, a lot of that uptick has really happened since 2014. 
Um, in fact, if you look at, if you go back 20 years to 1998, you'll see that the Rikers Island population was well over 17,000. It's about 7,000 today. And there were only about 6,500 violent incidents um, back then, despite today there only being, uh, you know, about 7,000 inmates. We only have about 12,000 uh, um, violent incidents. It's double the violence, essentially, with about half the population. I mean, in 1998, the, the design was exactly the same. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that you can attribute, for example, some of the problems to the design, violence being one of them. So uh, if that's the case, why would you say that violence is much worse? Uh, uh, is it a function of uh, brutal conditions? Are no. things more brutal there now? Than they I, I mean, well, they're certainly more brutal because inmates are more violent, and I think inmates are more violent because of, of significant policy shifts that have been undertaken under the de Blasio administration. Um, the main one has been um, basically the ban, the functional ban on solitary confinement or punitive segregation um, for inmates who are age 21 and under. That, you know, started as kind of an unofficial policy in 2014. Um, and became official policy first for, for, for inmates under 18, um, and then inmates, it was extended for inmates 21 and under. And what we've seen is that a huge chunk of the violence has actually been attributable to, um, to that policy shift. So, I mean, that's a perfect example of tweaks that could be made to improve conditions at Rikers Island without actually having to build anything. Um, originally, the city, when the city first announced this plan two years ago, they said they were going to reduce the total jailed population of the city from around nine or 10,000 because there's people not just in Rikers who are in jail. But That's there's, right. There's a, a jail in Manhattan, the Tombs, and then in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. as well. Um, but they were going to reduce that number to about 5,000. That's what the Lippman report said in 2017, right. that 5,000 was the target number at which it would be possible to house all the p j jailed people in local borough-based jails. But now the city says that the number really is just 3,300. They've reduced the number of beds they're going to need, cells they're going to need, um, in order to reflect what crime is going to look like in 2026. Is crime dropping that rapidly? Not to my knowledge. In fact, in, in New York City, some really important crime indicators are up for the year. I mean, citywide, both homicides and shootings are up. Um, more importantly, if you look at some of the more dangerous precincts within the city, um, shootings are actually up quite significantly. I mean, ranging, we're seeing increases ranging from 700% in some precincts to 400% in others, 300%, uh, 78%. You know, it's, um, crime is not evenly distributed throughout the city and in the areas that have kind of been struggling with with that issue over the last few years, we are seeing things start to deteriorate, at least at the margins. Um, so I'm not sure there's any real uh, scientific basis or, you know, uh, po legitimate public policy rationale um, that depends on the assumption that crime will decrease so rapidly as to allow us to be able to cut our jail population in half in just a matter of a couple of years, especially given the fact that the vast majority of people who are in jail in New York City are are already in the kind of worst of the worst offenders. In other words, we have done a pretty good job in the city over the last couple of decades 
of reserving um, incarceration for the kind of worst offenders. And it's a, it's really interesting to me because this was something that the mayor and 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 his supporters have always kind of latched onto as an explanation for the increased violence at Rikers Island over the last few years. One of the things that the city would say and they actually wrote this in the mayor's management report of 2017, was basically that one of the reasons uh, that that violence was was going through the roof within jail walls was that um, their successful diversion of so-called nonviolent offenders to you know non in, uh, to non-carceral uh, options has basically meant that the incarcerated population was. Uh, a bigger proportion of it was constituted by serious felons and violent offenders and people with gang affiliations, etc. Well, they said that back when when the when the the jail population was at about 9,500. We've since gotten it down to about 7,000, and now they want to cut it in half again. Um, what's not clear to me is why, if a few years ago the vast majority of people in jail were, according to the city, too violent to manage and control such that they couldn't put a cap on the violence, why we ought to feel good about letting these people out, which is exactly what we're going to have to do to get to that 3,300 number. We're taking a quick break to talk about the beat. You've probably heard us talk about it before, but if you're in the New York area and you like to follow public policy and politics in the city and state, The Beat is a newsletter that gives insight on housing, education, homelessness, infrastructure, and lots more, delivered right to your inbox three times a week. You can find it at www.thebeatmi.com. That's www.thebeatmi.com. If you look at the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice Statistics, I mean, they have a fact sheet, who's Mm -hmm. in Rikers, and they say very clearly the number of people in Rikers for prostitution or small marijuana possession is zero. And for fair beating, it's like, you know, maybe one or two on an average day. That's right. Which directly contradicts a lot of the rhetoric we hear from the advocates who continue to say that Racist mass inca- racist policies of mass incarceration that That's stem right. directly from like slavery to Jim Crow That's right. to the drug war to now that that's what's driving incarceration, that people are essentially languishing on Rikers who haven't done anything. But how do we get to 3,300? Because they have given – I mean it, it, it's not just – monkeying around with um, politics and the numbers. They, they do have a rationale for how sure. they're going to get there. So what can you say about uh, especially reforms at the state level That's that right. are now going to uh, come into effect? Well, so, reforms at the state level is certainly going to be a big part of it, right? I mean, the, J- the, the bail reform package that is going into effect in January is going to mean that a significant number of people will no longer be eligible for pretrial detainment. Um, because in New York, judges can only consider um, the danger of absconsion um, in making a bail determination. They can't consider danger to the community. And so what the new bail reform is going to do is it's going to take people who are facing charges on a, a list of a long list of offenses um, and basically say that you know bail cannot be imposed in those sorts of cases, right? So that's going to drive um, at least a chunk of, of the decrease. But they also knew that was happening back when the number was about 5,000. Um, the other thing, too, is the mayor 
um, actually has driven his own bail reform initiative here within the city as two teenage offenders um, and has imposed a list of offenses that uh, teenage offenders will now no longer be able to be held for um, on remand or or, or bail. So, you know, um, part of it's at the state level, part of it's at the city level. But again, none of these things account for the potential of a crime increase, right? I mean, New York City is a large city. We've got, you know, almost 9 million people. The idea that on any given day, no matter how long uh, your time horizon is, that we're never going to need more than 3,300 beds um, just doesn't really seem like it's rooted in anything other than um, this kind of artificial cap that's been placed. Well, I've, I've heard a lot of advocates, like there's this group, No New Jails. Right. And one of the things that they say frequently is that if you build jail cells, you will fill them, that there's a kind of carceral logic yeah. that, uh, you know, if you build it, you will, they will come essentially. Right. But you've pointed out that there's, there's a big hole in this logic. Where the, the, there's a huge hole in the logic, which is evidenced by the fact that New York State and New York City and the country as a whole has decarcerated at a relatively significant pace for years. I mean, the idea that every empty jail bed will be filled um, is just entirely contradicted by New York's story alone, right? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in the last 20 years, New York State has cut its prison population by somewhere around 30%. We've cut the jail population here in New York City by about 50%. Um, you know, there are plenty of there's there's plenty of space for for more people on Rikers Island. The idea that empty space means we're going to find ways to fill it, uh, yeah, it just doesn't reflect reality at at all. But I I do think these no new jails um, people are are, are really um, kind of uncovering um, an important thread that underlies uh, some of the opposition to uh, incarceration as a legitimate public safety tool. Um, you know. I, I do think that there are more people than we understand who actually subscribe to this prison abolition uh, and jail abolition um, mentality. I mean, even uh, uh, the, the the famous Congresswoman AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, recently tweeted tweeted that we need to seriously consider uh, prison abolition as a nation um, because, of course, our mass incarceration problem is a direct descendant of Jim Crow. So, you know... Um, I don't think there's that that this is a smart way to go about it um, at all. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's just in every respect, their arguments just are in complete uh, sort of opposition to what the data say. Yeah, the uh, the city just um, came up with a new uh, program. What is it? Project Reset, mm-hmm. Reset NYC, where um, I guess if it originally was teenagers, right? But now they've expanded it to everyone. Um, including people with prior records, uh, that if you're arrested for, I guess, a nonviolent offense, sure. uh, you can undergo a kind of alternative to being going to court. Uh, and I think in Brooklyn it involves taking a tour of um, the, the Brooklyn Museum, Museum That's right. of Art, a uh, two- to four-hour tour, and then a discussion group and um, this is meant – I don't know why this is considered restorative, but somehow it it's better, they say. Yeah, well, I'm not sure um, that it is. I mean, I certainly haven't seen any evidence to indicate that it's better. I mean, the idea that you can judge these offenders and, you know, 
categorize them definitively as nonviolent based on the most recent offense for which they were arrested, um, again, just doesn't really reflect the reality, which is that criminals don't specialize. And some of the people, in fact, many of the people who engage in low-level offenses and who get arrested for so-called low-level offenses do actually tend to be pretty serious offenders in their own right, which means that sometimes you can actually get a pretty decent incapacitation benefit from their incarceration were you to follow through on the penalties for those lower-level offenses. This is something that we've seen in New York for a long time, and, um, you know, these are these are lessons that we are um, ignoring, I think, at our peril. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, and, uh, you know, a former speaker of the city council, Melissa Mark Viverito, would say this, and a lot of people, you know, on Twitter come up with this, that people in Rikers, okay, some of them have been sentenced to Rikers. Sure. But many of them, I think the majority of them, are waiting trial. Right. Uh, so... Technically, they're innocent. They're not guilty. These sure. are people. These are innocent people who are languishing on Rikers. Um, now, it occurred to me that, well, yes, technically they're innocent, but in fact, most of them are guilty and will be shown to be guilty. Sure. That's not to say that innocent people should be punished. But what about this idea that um, that there's a kind of unfairness to being jailed before you've had due process. Well, that's the thing. I don't think it's actually before you've had due process. And this is a, another sort of fundamental misunderstanding that underlies the left's sort of approach to this debate. The idea that you cannot be held pre-trial or that you cannot be held in, an, in a carceral facility um, without having been determined to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt just has no real basis in the history of the due process clause. Um, there, the, the fact is, is that Everybody who is in Rikers Island has received at least some level of due process up to a certain point, and the, a, a judicial determination of probable cause is a, enough due process to hold somebody for a short period of time pre-trial. Right. So the idea that that you know that that there hasn't been any you know real consideration of the the case that's been presented um, by prosecutors in 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 these instances just you know again just doesn't reflect reality. If you're being held pretrial, a judge has made a determination that more likely than not, you have committed the crime of which you are accused. There's a hearing. You've, you know, the both sides can make arguments at that hearing. You can move to dismiss a case, whatever. Uh, the the fact of the matter is, is that if you are, that after you are arrested, before you go to jail, that that determination is made, um, and at least for a, a short period of time, that determination is enough to legally justify. Um, that incarceration pre-trial. That's an that's a interesting point that uh, I think a lot of people miss. Um, one other aspect of this whole debate that, um, that's interesting to think about is what will the new jails be like? Because the plan is, well, originally, some of these jails were going to be 40 stories high, like giant jail skyscrapers. Um, I mean, I looked it up, and that would be taller than the tallest building in, like, 25 states. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know how many jail skyscrapers there are in the world, but it doesn't sound like the most efficient way to jail people. Uh, and our colleague, Nicole Gelinas, ha has a very interesting piece about this. Um, I, don't, I wonder, what are your thoughts on... Because if you look at Rikers Island, it's about half the size of Central Park. Right. 
You can have jails that are fairly low slung. There's plenty of room for outdoor recreation. I mean, sure. you can look at it on Google Maps. There's basketball courts. There's a jogging track. Right. Presumably, you could have gardens. You could sure. have a farm. There's sure. all kinds of things you could have, especially if you have so few prisoners. Right. Um, so what will jails in the middle of downtown Brooklyn, like a skyscra- skyscraper jail, be like? Yeah, it's anybody's guess. I mean, you're certainly going to lose a lot of outdoor space, right? I mean, uh, I guess you could have a rooftop basketball court or, or something like that or tennis court or, you know. Um, but this, it's, there's going to be significant complications. And one of the things that I think is you know, really uh, going to be interesting to watch play out is the movement of prisoners and guards within the jails, right? You're going to have elevators, obviously, to take people up and down. Um, I mean, first thing that comes to my mind is what happens if there's a fire? <laughs> where where do they go? Um, are we going to build tunnels to get these people to and from court if they're going to be near courthouses? Um, how much is that construction going to cost? What is that going to be like? What are the logistics of that going to involve? I mean, it's, um, you know, the uh, when you need to move people in a really secure environment like a jail, the transaction costs of that are already high. And it would seem to me that a vertical jail complex um, are only going to add to those transaction costs. Yeah, because the the stipulations that the city council's trying to write into law in terms of the design of the facilities, uh, I mean, it's clear that what they're basing, their that what their model is, is like, I don't know, Norwegian or Dutch prisons. Yeah where people live in kind of a, like almost a dormitory style or like a suite Mm -hmm. and they have a kitchen and there's recreation and they're sort of left to themselves. Um, Now, as Nicole pointed out, at Rikers right now, there's very strict rules about when you transport people around, you have to make sure that certain categories of prisoner are not near each other, like passing in the hall. Uh, and I gather what that means is members of different gangs. Sure. So there's all kinds of weird things that complicate, like you said, that just the logistics of moving somebody from one floor to the next right. um, would seem to militate against having this open, humane prison system. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, the idea that you can just – it just doesn't make sense to me that we ought to adopt that model from a country or set of countries in which the the sort of well, there are categorical differences in the sort of people who are incarcerated, right? I mean, we have significantly more crime here in the United States, significantly more violent crime, more gun crime. Um, you know, my guess is is that you uh, that it would be a lot more dangerous to give Rikers inmates, for example, that much freedom and that much access to potentially dangerous tools. I mean, you know, prisoners and, and jail inmates, not just in Rikers, but around the country, are just incredibly uh, sort of ingenious in, in the the way that they can fashion weapons out of uh, sporks or, you know, even uh, rolled up pieces of paper. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it strikes me as dangerous to, <laughs> to give... Uh, the jail inmates at Rikers Island. Again, especially if you're reserving those carceral resources for truly the worst offenders, um, it it strikes me as as not a very good idea to give them that level of of freedom. So let's just step back for a minute. Uh, 
January 1st, 2020, bail reform comes into effect. Who's going to be on the streets? Who, who will not be going to jail? Like after they, they're arrested, what kind, of, what's the, what, what kind of crimes can you get arrested for and then just immediately be turned around for? Oh, I mean, uh, burglary. Uh, I think burglary in the second degree is, is one of the, the sort of more serious crimes that are on that list. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, some versions of, of low-level assault, I believe, as well. Um, I think resisting arrest might be on there. Um, you know, it's uh, one of the – it's not it, – it's also important to keep in mind that this limits bail determinations just to the offense for which someone is arrested, right? So – you may get arrested, for example, um, you know, for the 14th time for something like selling loose cigarettes. Um, and that, that may not sound like a very serious charge, but that doesn't necessarily, that charge may not always reflect the danger that someone poses um, to society, which means that, you know, this may not necessarily be someone you want out on the street. Um, I, you know, one of the, the really big downsides to the New York bail reform is that judges will not be able to consider that danger in making those decisions. They won't be able to consider um, what a person's past record will mean, um, you know, for, for, for their communities if they're, if they're not um, held pretrial. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a long list of, of offenses, um, some of which are, are more serious than I think um, the public is probably comfortable with. But um, this is what we're going to have to live with. And, um, you know, it's also going to be coupled with not just bail reform, but with discovery reform, um, which, you know, uh, prosecutors seem uh, really concerned will um, dissuade a lot of potential witnesses from coming forward and cooperating in criminal cases, um, that the transaction costs of, of conducting a criminal prosecution will be so high as to uh, price certain things out of the market, so to speak. Um so in the whole, um, I think we're, we're potentially in for um, a rude awakening in the next few years. Great. <laughs> well, uh, we'd love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at City Journal, hashtag 10blocks. If you like our show and want to hear more of it, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host, Seth Barron. Ralph Mangual, thanks for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.